Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Thank you, music team. That was amazing. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carry out, carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honored is owed. This is God's word. You may sit down. Let us pray. Our Lord, we do indeed this morning declare and believe that you are Lord. And so we bow before you. As we come now to this, your word, we pray that you would illumine our hearts, give us clarity of minds, and our Lord, would you be honored above all. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, friends, we're looking at Romans chapter 13. You'll find it in your worship folder and also in the church Bibles. Romans chapter 13 in our series in Paul's letter to the Romans. As I'm looking at this passage this week, I was reminded of a well-known quotation from Winston Churchill about democracy. Obviously, we live in a democracy, and ancient Rome was uh, not a democracy. But I'm reminded of uh, Winston Churchill's quotation. He said this, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all-wise. And then he carried on, indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Such a quotation rings in my ears, not only as we look at this passage, but particularly this year with all that's been going on in our political life. Uh, it does seem to have been the worst possible form of government, apart from any others we can imagine. So, in God's good providence, we come to Romans chapter 13, which is not only one of the most difficult passages to understand, but also uh, rings with a kind of resonance in our contemporary culture, which was probably not intended uh, by Paul, though would have been envisaged, of course, by God and his sovereignty. And we have to look at it <coughs> carefully and then think through together how to apply it. 
I suppose the first question is, why is now Paul addressing this matter of governing authorities? There are different reasons that people are given. Some think that he's responding to a potentially sort of over-spiritualized misunderstanding of his preaching and teaching. The reason why some scholars think this is because Paul was probably writing from Corinth and uh, the Corinthian church had that kind of misunderstanding, so maybe it was present in Paul's mind as he wrote to the Romans to guard them against a similar misunderstanding. Others uh, think uh, Paul's reason for teaching on uh, governing authorities at this moment is more to do with the historical context at Rome. Now, we don't know much about that, um, but uh, the historian Tacitus, T-A-C-I-T-U-S, Tacitus, uh, describes how at this stage, around when uh, Paul was writing the letter to the Romans, there was increasing popular opposition to, uh, indeed, taxation, and in particular a form of indirect taxation. And this culminated, actually, in a uh, popular uprising of some kind or other in about A.D. 58. We don't know much about it, but some people think, therefore, Paul was writing this, um, this chapter 13 to address what was going on in Rome at the time. Uh, Both of those are possibilities. Uh, To my mind, what I know for sure is that Paul has a shape of argument that's going on in his letter to the Romans right now. And uh, in that sense, it makes a lot of logical, um, there's a lot of logical rationale for why Paul would be talking about submitting to authorities at this point. So in the letter to the Romans, Paul in the first 11 chapters establishes the doctrine of the gospel of God. And this doctrine, because it is all from God, gives God glory and honor. And now, from chapter 12 to the end of Romans, he uh, applies the truth of that gospel in very practical ways. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What does that mean, Paul? What it means using your gifts in every member ministry in the church. What does that mean, Paul? What it means loving each other. As we saw last week, uh, verses 9 to 21, even when such love is a difficult thing to achieve, but we reflect on Jesus' teaching that we are to love each other. Well, now we come to Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. And of course, Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, introduces now a section where Paul's thinking more about how the church is to interact with secular society. So the Roman church was at Rome, uh, if any society, a secular, non-Christian society. And so as we think today about how we interact with our increasingly secular society, we are encouraged that uh, the letter to the Romans and other parts of the New Testament were written in a very secular, non-Christian context. And Paul now addresses that. The second half of Romans 13 is at the more personal level, uh, loving your neighbor, how you are to love your neighbor, those around you, even if they may or may not be Christian. How do you do that? What does that look like? And so Paul addresses that. But now in the first half of Romans 13, it's more about this issue of governing authorities. So how is the church, how are individual Christians within the church, to interact in a secular, that is non-Christian, a a non-theocratic state, as was the situation in the Old Testament, of course. How now God's people to interact in a secular society and to relate to the governing authorities who may well not at times uh, even be Christians. Such seems to be the flow of the logic of uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. That is relatively straightforward, in fact. What is more difficult 
is what exactly is Paul arguing or whether there are any exceptions to what he is saying here. I mean, clearly here he's telling us to submit to the governing authorities, as it's translated in the version we just had read out, or to the rulers in verse 3. So he's thinking about government, civil leadership, um, that kind of category. But what exactly is Paul advising about our relationship to government? And are there indeed any exceptions to this being subject to um, authorities? Now, you would say, well, here it is. He says everyone must submit to the governing authorities, and he lists no exceptions. So there can be no exceptions. Well, it is not quite so straightforward as that, because this letter to uh, the Romans is placed in the Bible, and the Bible says other things elsewhere about government and governing authorities. What is more, when the church has taken a hermeneutic, that is an interpretive stance, To these first seven verses, in absolute terms, there are no exceptions, it has led to some rather um, problematic consequences. Most famously, the church in Germany during the Nazi regime uh, wrestled with this question as to whether it could ever be right to disobey the authorities, even Hitler, because uh, Paul calls uh, the the, uh, governing authority the servant of God. So how could the church ever rebel against the servant of God? even if uh, he happened to be uh, Hitler. And the church really wrestled with that and came down on different sides to that question. Most Christians today would say that uh, actually uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh, the church that supported that stance uh, to Hitler and the Nazi regime and in effect rebelled against the government uh, took the right approach. For obvious reasons, because uh, the Nazis and the Hitler regime were evil, and the church needed to stand up and have its voice heard. But then how do you, if that is the case, and it seems to most Christians to be obviously the case, how do you square that with Romans chapter 13? Well, that is our task today, the next 15 minutes or so, so let us try. Uh, The passage itself is simply structured around a thesis statement then an explanation of that uh, statement, and then an application. Very simple. The thesis statement is verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So what does that mean? Well, Paul is addressing every person, everyone. So having encouraged the Roman church to be united in love for one another, he now encourages all of them to be united in an attitude to the, to the governing authorities. Now, again, we're not in exactly the same situation as uh, was Paul in ancient Rome, we live in a democracy where we have uh, choice and all the rest. But there's, a, there's an attitude here that he's encouraging them to have, in particular to be subject to. And what does it mean to be subject to? Well, the word has a picture in it. It means to place or range under. Uh, and then uh, these authorities are, as it is translated here, governing or those who are held above. Again, there's a picture to the word. So Paul is saying here that everyone, all the Christians in Rome, are to put themselves under the authority of those who are above. Now remember, we're talking about governing authorities, rulers, and uh, therefore we may say Paul's thesis statement is this. All of you are to place yourselves under the governing authority of those who are above. Now, how does Paul uh, defend this sweeping statement? 
what he does it in four ways uh, from uh, the second half of verse 1 to the end of verse 5. Here are the four ways and then I'll walk us through them. First, authority is from God. Second, resisting authority is to resist God's appointment. Third, if we do resist authority, we'll experience judgment and wrath. Fourth, therefore, do not resist authority. So I'm going to walk us through that, apply it as Paul applies it, and then put it in the context of uh, the wider teaching of the Bible, and therefore hopefully address the issue of what about the worst case scenario, or are there ever any exceptions, remembering all the time that we live in a democracy, not in the same kind of governmental structure as ancient Rome. So first, Paul says... Second half of verse 1, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So this is his first explanation. Authority is from God. Now, we have to pause and reflect on that statement immediately in comparison to the attitude of many people today. In our society today, authority is almost always viewed with suspicion, isn't it? Uh, we think uh, that authority has to always be held in constant wariness. Now, that may well be because we've been exposed to bad authority. And so perhaps there are good reasons for that um, feeling that we have. But nonetheless, we have to be challenged by Paul's attitude here, which is that authority is from God. Or as he puts it, there is no authority except from God. And so in the biblical worldview, authority itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, even though it can be abused. What is more, Paul says, those that exist have been instituted by God. So in other words, and this is very challenging, isn't it, for all of us, not only in theory is authority from God, authority in theory is a good thing, but also Paul's saying to the Christians in Rome, the actual existing authorities that you experience have been instituted by God. Now, again, we have to think about the context of such a statement, this time not in our contemporary culture, um, but a historical context. Um, given that almost certainly Nero was the emperor at the time, uh, Emperor Nero of infamous depravity. What well, not it remarkable that Paul says those authorities that exist have been instituted by God? It is a quite extraordinary thing. Now, some people say that this was written during Nero's good period, as historians say, that is, before he was persecuting the Christians and when he was being influenced by moral philosophers in, in, in a, a more positive way. And that indeed is possible, uh, but nonetheless, I think we have to realize, even so, it is a remarkable thing to say, Nero, at the very least, even if this was during his good period, was not a Christian and would have officially supported pagan religion. And yet, uh, the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Well, Paul continues to explain his uh, argument uh, in, the first half, uh, in the first half of verse 2. There he says that anyone who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Now the word resist also has a picture in it. So instead of coming under the authorities, the idea is now coming against the authorities. So Paul's logic, of course, is that if authority is instituted by God then those who resist or rebel against or oppose or come against authority are in effect resisting God's appointment. 
Now keep that mental picture of the ladder, the authority ladder that is in Paul's mind here. On the top is uh, God himself, who is king of kings and lord of lords. And underneath, on the next rung on the ladder, are the various governing authorities. And therefore, Paul says, in principle at least, even if there may be some exceptions, as we will see, in principle at least, to resist those authorities is to resist what God has appointed. Very challenging words. Well, if that's the case, then Paul's third explanation runs uh, from the second half of verse 2 to verse 4. And here it is that if we do resist authority, we will experience judgment and wrath. It's a natural consequence to the principle he is explaining. So Paul says in the second half of verse 2, those who resist will incur judgment. Now the question would arise, what kind of judgment does Paul mean? Does he mean a final judgment on the last day? Or does he mean the retribution and punishment of the governing authorities against more temporal, this world, wrongdoing? Well, from a dictionary standpoint, it would seem likely the word judgment here refers to God's final judgment. The dictionary definition of the word judgment is usually said to be a legal judgment in a court of law. And the word itself is usually used of God's final judgment in the New Testament. So that would seem to settle the case. On the other hand, in the context of this passage, and we must always interpret words in the context in which they're placed, in the context of this passage, Paul, in verses 3 and 4, relates this word judgment to the governing authorities, temporal authority, uh, in this world now. You can see this very clearly. Uh, They punish those who do wrong and approve those who do good. Uh, The fear or terror of an authority, verse 3, is for those who do bad, but not for those who do good. Um, If we want to be free from fear of the one who is in authority, then we are to do what is good, and we will receive his approval. Uh, Because, verse 4, the governing authority is God's servant for your good. If we do wrong, we will be afraid, because the authority does bear the sword. Another um, rather complicated statement there with a long history of interpretation to bear the sword references the governing authorities sanctioned lethal power in this world and without trying to pass out and explain all the different ways that that can lead to we just need to realize that there is real authority given to the governing authorities here and then in the second half of verse 4 Paul says the government Uh, The governmental authority is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You can see why it was very difficult for that church in Germany, underneath the Nazi regime. Well, putting it together, Paul is saying that the governing authorities' exercise of a legitimate authority against wrongdoing is then an expression of God's judgment and wrath, that is, God's opposition to evil and wrongdoing, which is mediated now in, uh, in this governmental structure and will be expressed truly and perfectly by God himself at the final judgment, for it is only a pale and imperfect, sometimes very imperfect, expression of uh, God's moral order in the world. Well then, fourth, uh, Paul then summarizes his explanation by saying, therefore, do not resist authority. An inevitable conclusion of what he's saying, 
So verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. In other words, we are to be subject to those in authority, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience, realizing that secular government's punishment of wrongdoing now is intended to be, again, often very imperfectly, but it's intended to be an expression of and indeed a warning about God's coming final judgment and the moral order that does exist as a reflection of God and his justice. And so therefore, verse 5, one must be in subjection or do not resist authority. So let me just summarize what we've got to, and then we'll get to what this means in practical terms according to Paul, and then we'll put it in the context of Scripture as a whole briefly to try and deal with this difficult question of any exceptions. So Paul's thesis statement is in the first part of verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. We have seen this means that everyone is to place themselves under the authority of those who are above. Authority here in context meaning the legitimately sanctioned governing authorities. And then Paul gives four explanations of this argument. First, he says, for authority is from God or God's appointment. Second, therefore, to resist or rebel against authority is to resist God's appointment. And therefore, third, if we do resist authority, we will experience judgment and wrath, for God's moral order is expressed in this world, even if imperfectly, and will be expressed perfectly in the world to come. And therefore, we have a conscience issue with relation to that, even if we get away with this, in this world, a governing authority and not noticing our wrongdoing. And fourth, therefore, of course, don't resist authority. Be subject to authorities. Now you will say, what on earth does that mean in practical terms? And Paul says, well, I'm glad you asked me that. Let me tell you. So he applies this teaching in verses 6 and 7. He says, because of this, you also pay taxes. And for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, and revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So what, Paul, is your application if these are servants of God? Well, his first application is pay taxes. (laughs) And then he generalizes that application where he says pay to all what is owed to them. So in other words, Paul is encouraging the Roman Christians on the basis of this argument that he's making and then explaining, he's now applying it to them, that they are to give to each person what is their due based on their place or position in the authority structure instituted by God. And that means, Paul says, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, it's a very difficult uh, passage, isn't it? And how are we to interpret it, given that we know that there are horrible injustices done in the name of various governments around the world? 
Are Christians simply to sit back and take it? And how does this apply to democracy when mercifully we all have an ability to influence things and have our voice be heard within the structure that is established? Well, it is clear that Paul here is urging the Romans to submit to the authorities. But the Bible students among us will immediately want to put up our hand and say, hold on, what about uh, Acts chapter 5? So Acts 5 verses 27 to 29 uh, goes like this. The high priest questioned them, that is the apostles, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, the authorities there instituted tell the apostles, stop teaching in the name of Jesus. What's more, we have told you to stop, and you're still keeping on doing it. And then uh, Acts continues. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So there seems to be then biblical warrant for disobeying authorities when they tell Christians to stop teaching about Jesus. Some authority comes to us and says, "Uh, you people at college church, um, you're studying the Bible too much. We don't like that. What is more, we've noticed that you believe that Jesus is not only a good guy, but is God, and indeed is the and the only way to God. Well, this is entirely inappropriate in our relativistic, pluralistic age. Please stop it. The elders will say, judge for yourselves whether it's right to obey God rather than men. We will keep preaching the gospel. That day may come. We pray it will not. But if it does... You will need to pray that the leaders of this church keep on preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Acts chapter 5. Again, uh, the Bible student among us will put up their hand and say, well, hold on, isn't there a larger narrative in Scripture? For instance, the book of Exodus, let my people go. Is it not true that God's people are in slavery under an evil authority that God rescued his people from, and of course it is true. And again, that uh, let my people go phrase is an important um, rallying cry for freedom for many people around the world. Well, then how do we come to a consistent view of what the Bible as a whole teaches about being subject to authorities? I think... And, of course, it's a very difficult thing that requires great wisdom, and this is why you do have a plurality of leaders in any congregation so that when such a difficult instance might occur, we can together seek God's wisdom. But it seems to me that, in principle, the answer is to remember what Paul is saying in Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. That is, he has a picture of a ladder of authority with God himself at the top. He is king of kings and lord of lords, and the heart of the king is in God's hand. God is at the top, and he has established a moral order. And if we're tempted to think that all authority is bad, perhaps uh, we should uh, look 
or study or read online about societies where there has been a total breakdown in authority and there is complete anarchy, unfettered crime and uh, the strong preying on the weak. And so God has established a moral order. He has set up governing authorities. And in normal instances, at least in our experience in the West, normal instances, those authorities are generally speaking for our good. However, and remember that ladder picture. When one of those governing authorities, and you may have experienced this yourself, I don't know, But when one of those governing authorities is no longer in any sense whatsoever representing God's moral authority as intended, that is, when uh, that secular authority commands us not to tell people about Jesus, prevents us from worshiping Jesus, or when that secular authority acts in clearly evil and demonic ways, and we all know that there have been times like that, Then we have biblical precedent, Acts chapter 5, for not obeying that authority. For in a sense, we are thereby supporting the actual authority structure God has instituted. And which that secular authority at that moment has themselves actually rebelled against. They're the rebel, not us. If someone further up, the governing secular authority louder than us is no longer in any sense submitting to the authority above them. In that instance, our expression of submission to God's authority structure might be. And it would require great wisdom and discernment to decide. But it might be to disobey what would now be their unfettered, evil dictatorship. But by doing so, we would be supporting And actually, we would be being subject to God's moral order and his authority. Do you see? Of course, most of the time, many of us are in a Romans 13 situation, not in an Acts situation, for which we should praise God. Though we should also remember, as we are going to be praying tonight that there are many Christians today who are in an Acts 5 situation being persecuted for their faith. In any case, we can at least pray. You remember what Paul reminded Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2? First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Why, Paul? Why pray for our governing leaders? Why? He carries on, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So, Paul, you just want uh, peace? Well, no, says Paul, I want a little more than that. He says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, Paul is urging Timothy to pray for peace so that the gospel might flourish. Well, a challenging passage.
And having reminded us to pray, let us do that. Lord, we take a moment now to remember those who have experienced serious injustice at the hand of governing authorities. Christians around the world persecuted for their faith. Uh, people in this country who have been victims of injustice. When we read this passage, we cannot but read it with that in our mind. And so indeed we do pray, Lord, for merciful, just government. Uh, we pray that particularly at this season, of course, with uh, many of us thinking through uh, what their responsibility should be on Tuesday. I pray that you would grant wisdom. And Lord, I do pray that in this great country, America, which for so many hundreds of years has provided a context where the gospel can flourish and be a base for missions all around the world, that you would, in your great mercy, not because of our righteousness, continue to provide that kind of context, Lord, that we might live peaceful, godly lives, and that all people might come to a knowledge of you, God, as their Savior. At any rate, Lord, uh, we know full well that our human authorities are fallen and fallible. And so we now remove them, as it were, out of our minds and bow before you, Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords, asking that uh, you would do according to your will immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine for the progress of the gospel. I pray today, Lord, that you would win someone to yourself. I pray, Lord, that you would unleash us as a church to take your gospel into this community, rejoicing that we have been forgiven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.